Hello everyone, this is Christian Massar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. And uh, today what I want to be talking about is, uh, I'm going into a little bit of historiography. So I'm going to be looking into um, reviewing actually an old Russian uh, history textbook. The first Russian history textbook that I used actually in, in university. So I'd like to review that and I'll be using uh, an historical framework uh, for that. And I have to admit, like, historiography is not really my forte. Uh, like, you know, when people use certain models to analyze something and whatever. I don't know. I, I, I didn't really get those kinds of classes and stuff like that. So I have to admit, uh, I, it, it took away a while to get used to them. But um, I'm going to take a stab at it here. And uh, we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about that textbook and we'll talk about the framework uh, specifically. I think mostly I'll be talking about the, the framework itself. But, um, but let's get right into it after this little message. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you would like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. The textbook can be a convenient medium through which to communicate a nation's history. In this review, I will attempt to judge a rather thorough account of Russia's historical narrative. A History of Russia, the Soviet Union, and Beyond is the textbook I will analyze, specifically the sixth edition published in 2002. This is the one I got when I did the course about 10 years ago. It was written by David McKenzie of the University of North Carolina and Michael W. Curran of Ohio State University. Uh, and this, this textbook, A History of Russia, attempts to introduce readers to that country's vast and rich story. In its 738 pages, the text begins with Russia's ancient origins and ends with an assessment of President Vladimir Putin, as of 2002, when he was only, had only been president for about two years. I personally used this textbook in a course about Imperial Russia. In spring 2013, when I was doing this course, in fact, a professor at Kansas State University, David Stone, also recommended this book as a preparation resource for a graduate level course about the history of Russian security. A previous edition of the book was also given positive feedback, which I will discuss at the end. How will I analyze a history of Russia? I could utilize a myriad of theoretical historical frameworks, and for this particular book, I've chosen to use two frameworks, that of Hayden White and James Lowen. First, I shall summarize White and Lowen's methodologies. Then I will apply these frameworks to the textbook. And finally, I will give some of my own impressions of the textbook itself. So the narrative framework of Hayden White. Who was this guy? Who was Hayden White? He was, in fact, not an historian as he focused instead on literary studies. But he saw historical works as narratives or stories that historians told. He wanted to create a framework through which historical narratives could be analyzed according to their structures rather than necessarily their historical content. This framework could do two things. First, it could reveal historians' styles. And secondly, stories could be gleaned from chronicles, answering questions such as, what happened then? And how did this event happen? White defines a chronicle as an open-ended historical story that abruptly starts at a chosen point and does not end with a final resolution. National histories are good examples of chronicles, as they can start from prehistoric times, as, you know, as some Canadian history textbooks do, for example, or any other arbitrary important date in that country's timeline. Like, um, for example, like when you look at books about Viking history, a lot of Viking history historical narratives seem to start at the raid at Lindisfarne in the 8th century. I'm not exactly of the, of the year, but I believe that's usually the point where um, a lot of Viking histories start. And a particular country's history is constantly changing, so it's unlikely that a text about that history will end with sufficient closure. Soon enough, new editions or sequels are bound to be written. And of course, textbooks are, are tricky. You know, you're trying to summarize things for 
students of various levels, right? You know, whether it's a high school level textbook or maybe even a social studies course for grade eight students, um, you're not going to, and you know, maybe even in high school, you wouldn't, I don't think you would have a textbook for a specific country unless it's maybe, uh, unless you're in America and you have a textbook, uh, you have a history course specifically about American history or you're in Canada and you have a course specifically about Canadian history. But, you know, it, I guess it would depend. But uh, in university, you'd you'd be more likely to have specialized courses specializing on British history or, or, um, or Russian history, for example. Um, but even then, when you're doing, like the course that I took this, the Imperial Russia, it started with all the way back from uh, Kievan Rus, and I think a little bit even earlier, all the way up, like I said, to um, Vladimir Putin, but I was taking an Imperial Russia course, so it basically ended with the Communist Revolution. Uh, but the textbook carried on. So that's the thing. Even though this textbook was huge, 700 pages, it still had to summarize a lot of things, right? This wasn't a deep dive, and it gave a lot of deep dives into various things like Peter the Great's reforms and so on, but it didn't really go in-depth into anything, really. While if you have something that's in-depth about the Smuta or the Raskol, for example, you know, you're going to have 700-page books on that one topic. So it's, it's so textbooks, they're like what we like to say, 30,000 feet views. You know, you get a good view of everything, but you don't get a detailed view of each specific thing. Now, that's almost impossible <laughs> to do in a, a textbook. You know, you'll be carrying a carrying a, a book in your bag and you have no room more, no room for anything else. Hayden White conceived numerous methods of explanation for chronicle analysis. They could be combined to fit narratives into specific categories. The following explanation methods are used in White's model. Emplotment, formal argument, ideological implication, and tropes. And we'll go by these one by one. Go into these one by one. Explanations by emplotment. Explanation by emplotment helps analysts figure out the genre of, of an historical narrative. White describes four historical emplotments, or the archetypical story modes that help historians tell, quote unquote, what really happened. These four stories, these four story modes are comedy, tragedy, romance, and satire. So again, comedy, tragedy, romance, and satire. In a comedic narrative, reconciliations are achieved between conflicting parties. Temporary, hopeful triumphs are celebrated, but the situation is left half-resolved. The story is open-ended, if you will. Tragic narratives are, of course, the opposite. The history's protagonist ultimately falls, and if there are celebrations, they are illusory and produce false hope. In the third story mode, romantic, the hero meets a challenge and finally overcomes it. Military, nationalist, and even economic histories are likely to be romantic in order to place the narrator, narrator's soldiers, country, and way of life in a positive light. And finally, there is the satirical emplotment. Satires offer mythical representations of events. They are used when the previous emplotments are considered inadequate to depict events. Simon Shama's book, Dead Certainties, Unwarranted Speculations, could be considered an historical satire as it uses mythologized historical narratives to demonstrate that we have, quote, broken lines of communication to the past. Explanations by formal argument. Explanations by formal argument, as opposed to implotment, deal with the idea of common sense ideas or universal historical laws, so to speak, that could explain, for instance, why or how the Crusades occurred, for example. Such ideas are used to turn history into a sort of science which universal laws govern, just like physics. But White suggests that history is a proto-science, because there is no unanimous agreement between historians like there is between scientists. History is less of an experiment-driven, observable field than science. Thus, according to White's framework, there is no possibility for binding historical laws. Even if historians want to create laws to explain historical phenomena, there will be no universal agreement, so there will still be arguments. You know, I, I, this thing about historical laws, yeah, yeah, I agree that you can't really bind historical laws to, to, to events, but, but there, are, there are fields of study like this, you know, and of course, like, what do you call Marxism? Marxism is, a, I guess, a framework or a philosophy that tries to explain the world 
uh, through the pro through the class struggle. You know that so that's a law, and then you know others more other more capitalist friendly um, systems or philosophies will say that you know philosophy or capitalism is what makes the world run and markets and um, you know things like the invisible hand and and all of this stuff too. So there are the ideas of historical laws, but whether they can be applied in all cases, that's the thing, right? And and there will be arguments. You know, a Marxist will say that struggle is is a is about class struggle and everything like that. But um, a capitalist will say that markets are going to solve problems and therefore markets create democracy and so on. So there's going to be that argument. So I, I can agree more or less with what White has said, but the fact is that there are historical laws and you also have to take into account human nature. You know, one of the big critiques of communism and Marxism is that human nature is, you know, humans are, are naturally um, greedy and naturally violent and so on. So that's why a lot of people are very skeptical of a perfectly run communist system, especially when it's done from top to bottom, especially when it's dictated from those at the top. And that's why somebody looking at a, a future, possible future world like Star Trek, a lot of people are very skeptical of that, where there's no money, yet there's harmony, there's, there's no violence on Earth, there's no crime on Earth. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, tell me another one. <laughs> Although Star Trek is mighty cool. So about formal argument, there are four ways to make explanations by formal argument. Formist, organicist, mechanistic, and contextualist. Formist arguments uniquely identify certain objects in history. While generalizations may be made about historical processes, agents, events, and so on are completely unique. A particular historical event will happen once, and although similar events may happen later, that event will never happen again. So people that might agree with a formist argument or formist mode of argument might say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. An organicist argument will see agents as part of processes, which are constantly developing and changing. But the final process is always greater than the sum of its parts. The organicist argument seeks to answer the question, how do all of these elements fit together? Instead of historical laws, as described earlier, it's interested in ideas or general principles, as well as the final result of the agents and events. The mechanistic view also sees every historical agent as part of a whole. But unlike the organicist argument, this mode reduces agency and personal choice or influence by searching for deterministic laws of history. So actors are made, of, made part of the great machine of history, and events keep the machine running. In the organicist argument, historical figures are free to operate within the paradigm of ideas and principles, but in, in the mechanistic view, they are bound in a system of inescapable, inevitable laws that determine their interactions. And these laws are considered far more important than the actual events and actors which they govern. So that's the subtle difference. Think of mechani the mechanistic view as seeing history as part of a as as a big machine, the great machine of history. Again, but it's just like any machine, uh, it's just like any real machine, like a car or an airplane. They're subject to the laws of physics and science. Finally, the fourth mode of argument in contextualism. Quote, events can be explained by being set within the context of their occurrence, according to White. Each event has its own context, and each actor involved has his or her own relationships, motivations, backgrounds, and so on. Events happen because of the relationships between actors. Actors and events influence each other. This leads to narrative of, quote, manifestly significant occurrences. Contextualist arguments give actors agency within the context of their particular situation. Thus, these arguments reject the mechanistic laws that dictate cause and effect. But they also reject the formalist idea that every single event is completely different. Just like anything else, historical events should be looked at in their individual context and environments. Similar events can happen in two totally different regions or environments, and thus completely different contexts. Right, so contextualism, I think... Contextualism makes a lot of sense, right? There are not necessarily any laws, right? Because if you try to apply a certain law to situation one, and then uh, and then that same law to situation situation two, it might not work out the same way. You know, the American Revolution had its own context, and the Russian Revolution and the French Revolutions had their own context as well. Um, and then there were other revolutions that that failed and brought about 
completely different results and everything like that. So, so that's, that's kind of a situation and every, and, and that's, I think that's a very interesting point about actors and events influencing each other. You know, that's the whole thing about agency where the, the mechanistic view um, saying that actors and events are just part of a whole machine and they have no agency, they have no choice. Uh, no, people have choices, you know, no matter what situation they are in, uh, whether they, if there's a revolution, if they take part of the re in the revolution or if they're against the revolution or whatever, no matter what side they're on or if they're neutral, they have choices, you know, and, you know, one person can influence another. They can persuade each other. They can fight each other. They can attack each other. They can kill each other. They can do all kinds of things. So I think for me, the contextualist argument makes makes the most sense. The idea that, yeah, there are no laws dictating things, but there are similar events. There are certain things. You can, com you can compare events. You know, I've done that before, like comparing certain philosophies or comparing certain events. I've done a little bit of that before where and they're not all the same so it's not like the law of gravity which affects everything exactly the same way but they're different contexts right yeah i did a one podcast a long time ago uh i did a little bit of a comparison between the um the october revolution which when the communists when lenin's communists finally took power and from the provision russian provisional government in 1917 um but then well november in the Western calendar, but October Revolution at the at the time of the revolution, <coughs> when they were using the Julian calendar in Russia, and and I compared that to the failed coup attempt in Turkey in two thousand sixteen. Right, so you know you can compare things. You can compare this revolution succeeded, this coup attempt did not succeed because of these reasons. And so you know you can use those contexts. You you can look at different contexts and compare them. But there's no not necessarily a universal law, and also everyone in this situation had their own individual choices. Now, what about explanation by ideological implica implication? White is not concerned with political parties in his concept of ideological implication. This concept, rather, represents ideas of where society should go. These ideals are reflected in historical narratives. And he, uh, White, puts out four possible explanations for by ideological implication. Conservative, liberal, radical, and anarchic. If a narrative has a conservative ideological implication, it means that social changes are ideally gradual and very slow if there's any change at all. For instance, a conservative history might show how some agency, institution, or practice remained unchanged, even during times of great turmoil, such as the French or communist revolutions. Parts of the great social machine are changed, but there's no immediate wholesale paradigm shift. In liberalism, the remote past is idealized, so it is a fairly romantic ideological implication. Like the conservative one, liberalism aims to change just parts of the machine. However, liberalism seeks to deliberately tweak these parts in order to better society, instead of waiting for things to change like conservatism. Or, you know, in conservatism, if it changes at all, again. Radical and anarchic implications are completely different. They are both interested in cataclysmic transformations. Yet radicals believe that a better society is just around the corner and a revolution must happen to make it reality. Think of Marxists. Anarchists, in contrast, are nostalgic, looking back to a pure, uncorrupted society. You know, no government, no banks, no this. This can happen at any time, as long as people can reject the current corrupt and, quote, illegitimate society. Thus, revolution is not as crucial. Now, I don't want to go too much into that ideological, ideological implication, but let's go into tropes. And finally, we arrive at White's idea of tropes. Uh, I hope you've been with me so far. We've talked about ideological impl implication. We've talked about, um, we've talked about formal argument. We've talked about implotment, uh, right? Implotment being whether something is comedic, tragic, romantic, or satirical. Uh, formal argument, whether it is formist, organicist, mechanistic, or contextualist, how history works, and then ideological implication, depending on how, what's the ideal. And then now we have tropes, the fourth thing. This is the final building block of White's analytical framework. A trope is an archetype or structure that is used to explain something. Again, Whiteley uses four tropes in his framework, metaphor, metonymy, synecdoche, and irony. A metaphor is used to describe something by giving it the attributes of something else. For example, 
A graduate student may be described as an earthen vessel that is filled up by learning new knowledge. A metonymy calls one thing by using the name of one of its attributes. White uses an example in which a fleet of 50 ships may be called 50 sail, right? A synecdoche describes an object by using a part of it. In essence, an attribute or part of something is used to define it. And finally, when using irony, somebody says one thing to mean another. Depending on its context and tone, the sentence, quote, Bob was very interested in meaning his lawyer, could, not, could mean that he was not interested in meaning his lawyer. You know, a bit of sarcasm. So these four things, implotment, formal argument, ideological implication, and tropes. These are the things that are part of um, White's, Hayden White's narrative analytical paradigm. As I mentioned at the beginning of this description, we can use it to analyze an historical work and place it in a certain category. For example, a narrative may be a liberal, contextualist, and comedic narrative that uses a lot of irony. So kind of like using, kind of like categorizing one of Shakespeare's plays, for example. Is it a tragedy? Is it kind of satirical? Is it this, you know? Um, so we can use that for historical works. What is the purpose of such an analysis? White said that his framework could help us understand an historian's historical graphical style. Also, if we look at historical works as narratives or stories, we open new modes of inquiry and new questions may be asked. For example, why did this historian describe this event in that way? What does his ideal society look like? How does he feel about this event? Is it a good or a bad thing in his eyes? What are the moral and ethical implications of this historical narrative? You know, kind of a, a simpler way of looking at this is kind of like, when you see a news report, you know, for example, a news report may claim to be neutral and just looking at the facts, but maybe by the wording, it might not appear so neutral, right? And it might not even be intentional, like, but a certain word may be in there or a certain tone of voice or certain something may be in there that causes things to maybe not look so neutral, right? So what is the the message of this? And so this, this, um, analytical paradigm of Hayden White is kind of a way of um, analyzing something in a more complicated way than just, oh, what words did the person use? What tone was there? Soon, I shall attempt to place a history of Russia, the Soviet Union, and beyond within Hayden White's framework. Again, the 2002 edition. But first, I shall look at another theorist, James Lowen, who clearly despises how most textbooks are written. So James W. Lowen is a social scientist who wrote the book Lies My Teachers Told Me, a scathing review of feel-good history and the textbooks that promote such narratives. In this book, Lowen is bothered by how, about how textbook writers do such things as manipulating facts and cherry-picking them to make history teachable. He dislikes how many textbooks are filled cover to cover with nationalism and how they heroize or idolize or lionize, perhaps, historical characters. Textbooks are often huge, overly full of information, Lowen says. They're crammed with details which the authors or publishers are afraid will destroy the narrative if left out. This leads to books that, that quote, average four and a half pounds in weight and 888 pages in length. They also, quote, encourage students to believe that history is facts to be learned, and quote, blinding students to the fact that history is in fact a field of, quote, again, furious debate informed by evidence and reason. Textbooks, argues Lowen, cheapen the historical profession. Worse, they do a great disservice to history students and historians by teaching whitewashed, simplistic, and quote, friendly narratives, even of history's darlings that were real-life monsters. To illustrate some of Lowen's concerns, I will briefly look at his interpretations of traditional American heroes and how they are portrayed in American textbooks. The first example he uses is that of Helen Keller. In many history textbooks, Keller is shown as a great American humanitarian, yet much of her life is ignored. Lowen believes this is to be lying, quote, by omission. Textbooks leave out the fact that Keller, in fact, became a radical socialist who left for joy at the news of the Russian Communist Revolution. Many American historical textbooks might not be interested in showing that fact. As a socialist, she was an object of derision in the media at the time, and she harshly criticized the American social system. Helen Keller was clearly a radical figure, and Lowen says that American media has omitted this fact, just as the media of Keller's day poured contempt upon her for her ideas. Lowen then analyzes the track record of President Woodrow Wilson. 
Wilson is often depicted as a great leader who, quote, reluctantly brought America into World War I and worked valiantly to create the League of Nations after that conflict. I remember doing a high school history course, History Grade 12, in British Columbia, and, and it was like that too, and this was a Canadian class. I'm not sure if the textbook was Canadian, but I don't, somehow don't think it was, but I don't remember what, um, who published the book, and I don't even remember the book's name, but it was... It was kind of like that. It was, uh, it showed Woodrow Wilson as this great American visionary and, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create a system that's going to be like a precursor for, to the United Nations. We're going to prevent war from ever happening again and so on. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, you know, divide, you know, have self-determination for all these different groups. And yeah, he was seen as this great visionary guy. It's like, let, let the different ethnic groups of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, break up the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, and let all the different ethnic groups inside, Austrians, Hungarians, Croats, everybody, let's let them have their own thing. Let's create the state of Yugoslavia. And, um, but though Yugoslavia included all the, a bunch of ethnic groups in one country, not their own countries, but, so that was, that, I remember that actually from many years ago. And Woodrow Wilson is described as a man of progress, an ideal man for the job. Yet Lowen notes that President Wilson sent American troops to intervene in Mexico, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama, and what later became the Soviet Union after the after the communist revolution. The you know American troops were sent to stop the communists, right? So, and textbooks justify Wilson by saying, "quote He had no choice but to carry out these interventions." And Lowen says that no American textbook he investigated anyway even mentioned the president's Soviet mission, though Russian books talk about it a lot. And it gets even worse. Lowen says that Wilson was a white supremacist. In 1916, Wilson pushed African Americans out of the federal government. I know that, um, you know, I'm certainly no expert on President Woodrow Wilson myself, so I can't really comment a whole lot, but I do know that one um, a cynical historian on YouTube really hates Woodrow Wilson. Uh, so it, it would be interesting to investigate that further. But I do, I am very familiar with the fact that Woodrow Wilson was. Uh, he's always idolized in Ameri in in textbooks, but uh, he's always you know again this man of progress. And then, but these other things are like mm, casting doubt on those things. And finally, Lowen dedicates an entire chapter to the American narrative of Christopher Columbus. Lowen spends considerable time to note how textbook authors like to start their American chronicles at Columbus's landfall in 1492. This makes textbooks ignore, or at least give, or at best. Giving give passing nods to earlier possible American dis, quote unquote discoverers. Forget forget Native Americans and First Nations, which obviously arrived there first. But Lowen continues noting how Columbus is depicted as a courageous, undaunted hero of discovery. The voyage across the Atlantic is sometimes depicted as long, arduous, and dangerous. And just as with Woodrow Wilson, Columbus's story gets worse. American textbooks ignore Columbus's reign of terror in the New World, under which Native people were mutilated, raped, and enslaved. Lowen says that when these atrocities are ignored and when Columbus is heroized as the quote-unquote discoverer of America, we risk, quote, identifying with the oppressor. He also says that feel-good histories, such as American stories about Columbus, are boring. No wonder, he says, no wonder students lose interests. So now, finally, let's go to this A History of Russia textbook in the framework of Hayden White. And I'll, I'll try to put it in Hayden White's framework. According to White's analytical model, A History of Russia is clearly a chronicle. Its narrative starts in the Eurasian plain, quote, north of the Black Sea. It begins in a very distant past that is mysterious due to, quote, an almost total lack of historical sources. Definitely true. When you're looking at Russian history, when you go into ancient Russian history, like in the, you know, you're, my, one of my professors always was, said it was a very precious thing. Like when you found a primary source, you were so precious, it was so precious. The book then continues throughout the millennia, ending with a detailed analysis of Vladimir Putin's presidency, which had only started two years prior to the publication of the sixth edition, remember, in 2002. At the end of the book, there's no grand comment of Russia's role in world history or some other neat concluding remark. Russia's story was not completely told in 2002. Well, of course, no, no country's history is. It was at that time. And it's still being written as history progresses. 
A history of Russia is thus an open-ended narrative, as many other national histories would be, for it simply says that, quote, much remains to be done in Russia. I will analyze this somewhat somber uh, comment in more detail very soon. Analyzing this textbook through White's framework might be a bit hard because it looks at problems from completely different perspectives. While the textbook does assert facts, it is also a guide to the myriad theories that exist in Russian historiography. Thus, it took a fair amount of thought for me to give a history of Russia its own space in White's system. So what mode of emplotment does this textbook use? It is, a, is it a romantic history? No. A history of Russia does not end on a happy note. It lists Russia's numerous problems in the early 2000s, which included a low birth rate, bad infrastructure, poor health, crime, and more. As I just noted two par the, a little while ago, the textbook ends with the sobering words, much remains to be done. At, this, at the end of this textbook story, Mother Russia does not enjoy an ending in which everything is happily resolved. So does it have a tragic implotment then? I will answer no to this question too. Many tragic moments are described in this book, you know, as any Russian history book should. For instance, Ivan the Terrible's oppressive Oprichnina system is blamed for a disastrous loss of life, a demoralized army, and other ills. The time of troubles of the Smuta is described as a hellish time of multiple foreign invasions, succession disputes, and false stars. But, but as we've see, just seen, a history of Russia's narrative doesn't leave us with a real conclusion, either good or bad. It's not saying that Russia's history has always been dark and it will always be this way. It doesn't say that. So... Is this book a satire then? No. This textbook makes an attempt to be a serious historical work. You know, of course, why would a textbook be a satire? And it even cautions readers about blindly accepting the primary Russian chronicle, which is an early source of Russian history, one of the earliest, as it's considered fairly mythical, right? So this book is not trying to, you know, I can't think of an example, but you can imagine that some, some books will look at something and they'll, They'll kind of go into, and this is the, these maybe some older textbooks. These are the origins of these people. This is the origins of this people right here. Um, you know, the this this people's ethnic background is Slavic. This uh, the, the people's ethnic background is actually Finnic, Finno-Ugric, um, and so on. But but that textbook, from what I remember, you know, it was a very long time ago since I read it. But what from what I remember, it went into the some of the theories of ancient Russia and kind of the origins of what is now Russia and so on. But, but again, it's still kind of cautioned. Yeah, this is, a, this is fairly mythical. This is fairly, uh, you know, we don't, you know, it was kind of like, these are some of the ideas and these are some of the arguments for it. If it's not tragic, if it's not romantic, if it's not satirical, a history of Russia must be, must use comedic employment then, right? Yes, much remains to be done in Russia, as the book says. But the Russians have also made progress in overcoming some of their troubles. You know, Vladimir Putin at that in that in that book was said to have countered to have been a counter to the old corrupt Soviet regime. Um, after all, Mackenzie and Curran, the writers of the textbook, note that Russia had an impressive economic recovery in the Putin era, um, especially you know partially due to high oil prices. And you know, Russia of the of the two thousands when this book was being written, and you know uh, later on. Uh, especially perhaps was a lot better than Russia immediately after the Soviet collapse, right? And of course, the book also mentions the efforts to make its military more efficient. Well, now we're in October 2022 and, you know, seeing the, the efforts of the war in Ukraine, you know, how effective those reforms have been. Anyway, so this textbook leaves us with a sense that some of Russia's issues are at least temporarily and partially resolved as of 2002. With this in mind, the comedic implotment makes the most sense. I think if we're going to, you know, if we have to force it into a framework, I think that would make the most sense, right? Because it's it's saying, yeah, there is some hope. There's a lot to be done. Um, it's not saying that Russia's history is all great and its future is completely bright or anything like that, but it's just saying... You know, it's saying that there's a lot of progress, uh, there's still a lot of progress to be done, but a lot of progress has been made, right? So, you know, it's, it, I would say the comedic implotment makes the most sense. What about White's model of ideological implication in this book? The radical and anarchist implications do not fit this textbook very well. Because this book analyzes such a large timeline, about the 10th century to the early 21st, 
catastrophic events such as the Smuta and the Communist Revolution are somewhat far apart from each other. The textbook does not jump immediately between these cataclysmic climaxes, but it rather gives a lot of information and explanations in between them, and also a lot of talks about a lot of events in between these cataclysmic events. More importantly, it also does not romanticize the communist revolution and the subsequent Soviet policies. So it's not really advocating for great social change, like a radical, like a radicalist, um, um, like a radicalist uh, implication of like, oh, we just need another revolution and we're just going to fix it. And it's not also not anarchist in the way of saying like, oh, let's go back to the period of Peter the Great when everything was good and Russia was a great empire. It doesn't do that. It's just presenting the history. Overall, a history of Russia shows change as happening slowly in the country. The rise of Moscow is shown as a somewhat long and certainly a hard process. Cultural conservatism is certainly shown as a force in Russian history. The authors actually considered Kievan Rus' adoption of Byzantine Christianity in 988 as a stifling force that would, quote, inhibit future Russian cultural development. Uh, the authors would argue that the religious turmoil surrounding the old believers in the 17th century would be due to Russian conservatism. So I can't say this book should be pegged as having a conservative ideological implication either. I, again, like I just said, it's not anarchist in looking back to an ideal society like such as Peter the Great, but it's also not saying that slow change is a good thing, right? It's, an, it's not saying that like the, like the conservative ideological implication might. The book's depiction of Peter the Great's reforms could be interpreted as giving it a, a slightly liberal implication. These reforms were meant to transform imperial Russia's ineffective and corrupt bureaucracy and political system. Though these reforms were not completely effective, you know, what reform is, the book shows Peter tweaking the system to better his society. And they certainly were not cataclysmic. However, these reforms were not, are not looked upon with a nostalgic eye to the past, but rather with an optimistic eye to the future. So, again, putting something into a framework like this is kind of a little difficult, right? So, but I think the liberal implication makes the most sense, at least when it comes to talking about Peter the Great's reforms. You know, talking about, you know, we're not, the Russian history is changing. It is always changing. It is always changing slowly. The, the textbook is showing that. It always changes slowly and Peter the Great's reforms are there. But, but it didn't destroy Russia to rebuild it. It just, made, it just changed a lot of the, the, the historical machine of Russia. Right? So that's more of a liberal implication. We are tweaking things. We're making things run a little bit better. But, but we're not destroying the system like an anarchist or a um, um, radical system or implication might say. So, so far, I would say the book has a comedic implement and a liberal ideological implication. Right? What about the mode of argument? A history of Russia has three main ideas that define Russia, autocracy, collectivism, and mysticism. According to the book, autocracy, or statism, emerged during the unification of Great Russia after 1450. This central power base, this authors argue, lasted until Russia's very recent democratic governments. Until that time, Russia was under autocratic czars and powerful Soviet governments. I mean, of course, there are certain things like the... Um, the Novgorodian Republic, the Veche, and all these other experiments with democracy over the period of reform. But overall, Russia did have a very autocratic system. And, you know, I would say it does now too. Mackenzie and Currents say that under autocracy, individualism was discouraged and serfdom lasted from around 1550 until the 1860s. The resulting paradigm of collectivism then helped Russia survive multiple crises, including the Second World War. And finally, mysticism and the subsequent cultural conservatism separated Russia from the intellectual West. Mysticism is said to have led Rus to Russian mistrust of foreigners, even in the atheist Soviet age. You know, I don't want to unpack that too much, but, uh, but this is what they're saying, right? So the main ideas that define Russia are autocracy, collectivism, and mysticism, according to this textbook. However, these three ideas did not always define Russian events. For example, mysticism did not prevent the atheistic communist revolution, even if it did encourage Soviet xenophobia, according, again, according to the textbook. 
Tsarist and Soviet autocracy also did not last forever. And also I mentioned other things too. Russian history is full with full of experiments with sort of, you know, semi-democratic semi-democratic things. So these and of course and of course look at the look at 1905 where there was the Duma, right? So there were attempts at this. So these ideas certainly helped define Russian history and they explain why some trends tend to repeat. But they are not necessarily immutable laws again, as a mechanist mode of argument would suggest. And similar events, such as the communist revolution and peasant rebellions against serfdom, appear in completely different contexts and times. Because of these factors, a history of Russia has more of a contextualist mode of argument. So, comedic, liberal, contextualist. Okay, I think, I think that's so, that so far. And finally, what about tropes? I'll talk about this very briefly. This is a serious historical work and it tries to portray Russian history accurately. So irony is not a valid, valid trope to describe it. But I do argue that this book uses synecdoche. I point again to the just mentioned three main ideas, autocracy, collectivism, and mysticism. These ideas are shown to be attributes of Russia's very character and they are used to define and guide Russia's whole history, according to the textbook. So finally, I would say a history of Russia that the edition from 2002, has a comedic implotment, liberal ideological implication, and a contextualist mode of argument, and it uses a synecdoche trope. There we go. So according to White's, <laughs> according to Hayden White's model. Now, what about Lowen? Would James Lowen despise the history of Russia like he does many American textbooks? To answer this question, I'll first look at how Mackenzie and Curran depict some of Russia's great people. From chapters 2 to 8, Mackenzie and Curran discuss the Kievan Rus and Mongol yoke periods. A few Russian heroes appear in these chapters, such as Vladimir the Great and Alexander Nevsky. Yet the authors do not explicitly heroize these characters. For example, there's Alexander Nevsky, the leader of the Novgorod Republic. He is one of the greatest men in Russian history, and he also became an important character in epic Soviet cinema. In A History of Russia, the textbook, his victory against the invading Teutonic Knights is indeed shown as significant, the Battle of Lake Pipus. D despite this, there would come the Tatar Yoke, a two centuries period during which the Mongol Golden Horde would rule over and force tribute from Novgorod and other Russian principalities. So, you know, yeah, he, he fought off the Teutonic Knights, yes, but, you know, <laughs> eventually um, he also had to appease the, the Mongols right after, after Kiev of the Rus was destroyed. Another man is Dmitry Ivanovich Donskoy, who, quote, apparently showed shrewdness and initiative very early. But again, despite his role in Soviet national narratives as a great hero, uh, Mackenzie and Curran say his victory at the Battle of Kulikovo in 1380, quote, changed relatively little on the surface. The Tatar Yog, after all, would not be lifted for about another century after the battle. And finally, we return to President Putin, modern Russia's great man. He may have had a, quote, bulletproof reputation, but he's still flawed, according to the textbook as evidenced by his poor, poor handling of the Kursk uh, submarine, naval submarine disaster and of his threat to democracy. And of course, now, you know, again, October 2022, he decided to send his country to a war in Ukraine, which has ended up being a disaster, not, of course not just for the, the Russian military and, the, and Russia itself, and of course Ukraine, but also, you know, also the humanitarian cost, right? So and that was, of course, that was, that book was, the book I'm talking about was published 20 years before that war started. So what sources do Mackenzie and Curran use? In the early part of the book, they do refer to the Russian Chronicle, the primary Russian Chronicle, as I mentioned earlier. But they don't rely on the source, and they try to look at the source with a view to the practical historical context, despite its rhetorical and slightly mythical nature. They mention old narratives that have been important in Russian history and may offer valid explanations for events. Their efforts in this regard help to demystify Russian history. Again, when you're dealing with a national history that has so few sources, so few primary sources uh, at certain times, you have to be very careful, but you got to use the sources you have, right? 
the primary Russian chronicle was written, I believe, about two centuries after a lot of the events supposedly took place, right? But So it's not exactly a reliable source necessarily, but again, it's about all we have. So we have to, we have to use that. And I think that the, the textbook has used these sources quite well. You know, it tries to explain them, but it also does caution, hey, well, you know, it's, um, you know, this is what we have, but be careful with this. Who knows? Maybe we'll find something a little bit later on that will be better than the prim better than the primary Russian chronicle, but I'm not sure. In summary, I do not believe a history of Russia fits Lowen's definition of a bad textbook. It does not give undue worship to Russia's so-called great men, and it does not create a history solely from questionable mythologized sources. Now about a few words about my impressions of this textbook. Uh, again, uh, I've already given some of my impressions already, and I read this book quite a few years ago when I was doing uh, a Russian history course, but I was quite impressed with it. It covers a wide range of topics in detail from the beginnings of Kiev and the Rus to even the environmental crises in the Yeltsin area, the Yeltsin era. As I mentioned earlier, this textbook tries to achieve balance between the many different modes of thought that exist in Russian historiography. In multiple chapters, Mackenzie and Curran show debates between historians over things such as religion, the impact of Mongol rule, and why the USSR collapsed. It informs readers about the debates uh, in Russian studies, allowing them to move beyond the mere collection of facts, which Lowen complained about when looking at American textbooks. Uh, a History of Russia also speculates about key moments, hypothesizing how things could have gone differently. For example, in the, one of the questions in the book was, quote, what if the Tatars did not conquer Kiev and the Rus? Yet, it doesn't go too far into these questions which cannot realistically be answered. You know, I think that hypothetical history is amazing. Uh, there are a number of hypothetical history uh, YouTube channels, for example, um, that that really answer try to answer these questions. Like, for example, one, I believe it's uh, Monsieur Z, um, that talks about, you know, what if, what if the Russian um, Alaskan colony survived? What if Russian North America wasn't sold to the United States? So I, I think questions like that are, are really amazing. But when you're dealing with a textbook, when you just want to show the facts, this is Russian history, this is what happened, and these are some of the debates about it. Let's not get too stuck in the weeds of what could have happened in a hypothetical situation that we don't know. You know, let's do a Rick and Morty situation and go to that universe. But, <laughs> but that's kind of difficult. So, um, so, you know, we can't really do that. So this textbook doesn't do that. Um, and, of course, the book cannot give a deep study of every topic or question. Like I said before, a textbook is trying to give a 30,000-foot view of a, of a national history. It can't go so deep. You can't write a master's thesis in a, um, about the 1905 Duma and, you know, in a textbook. You just can't do it. But the textbook does make an honest and worthwhile attempt to at least give a substantial introduction to Russian history. Again, it goes beyond just facts, but it actually encourages you. Like, what would have happened at this? What do you think? You know, that's, that's, uh, that, that's what um, I think the textbook did really well. I'll conclude with some comments from Neil Heyman, who reviewed a previous edition of this book way back in 1977. He praised Mackenzie and Curran for their humility in saying that some areas could not be deeply studied due to a lack of sources. And, you know, of, of course, you know, Russian history, again, is notoriously infamous for having a lack of sources early on. And, of course, 1977, this was during the Cold War, when, when I think it would have been a lot harder to do proper, histor proper historical research on Russia than it is, uh, than it is now. The book, he, uh, the book, said Heyman, would appeal to stronger students in upper-level courses. As I myself found, he thought that the book had, was an honest effort at explaining Russia's story. So... That, those are some of my thoughts on an old textbook that I have it, I, I used, and I still have it. Uh, and um, I haven't looked at it in quite a while, but I know sometimes it's, it was a really nice book to summarize things. Like if I want to look up something or whatever, I found it was a very good source um, for that, of, of summarizing something. So it's a, it was very, very good in that way. Um, and, you know, I, I think of the textbooks that I've had, I would say it's probably one of the best that I had. Like, obviously, in my time, like, I've had a lot of other books during my university and college time, college years, 
but those were specifically focused on on warfare or something like that. But as as far as a textbook of a national history, um, this one with this one was quite good. I think it was it was probably um, the best uh, that I've that I've had. I've had Canadian history and American history textbooks too. But again, I'm 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 a Russophile, so <laughs> I love studying Russian history. So it's um, so I think this one was definitely one of my best. And um, I hope that you're um, you're able to follow along through the frameworks and everything like that. I know for me, it took a little while for me to wrap my head around them too. Um, and uh, but if you've made it this far to the end of the podcast, I appreciate you listening. And and uh, you know, I just want to say, just keep taking care of each other. That's one thing I've always wanted to say at the end of my episodes. The war in Ukraine is really a bad thing. The speaking of Russia, Russia has gone on a very dangerous, dangerous path in deciding to go to war. Um, I do believe that many other countries have also made mistakes that have helped lead to this situation. Of course, I'm not um, letting them off the hook. But eventually, just like um, well, as we talked about, events and agents. You know, there there's agency there. You know, people decided to 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 go on with this war, and as of uh, mid October now, it's October tenth. Very recently, the Crimean Bridge was attacked, and also you know, a few days after that, um, now Belarus and Russia have created a joint uh, formation of Russian and uh, and Belarusian troops. Whether that means that Belarus is going to join the war in Ukraine after Russian setbacks in the country, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, then also a lot of um, Ukrainian cities were attacked as well. Um, very, very recently with uh, Kaliber cruise missiles. So um, I guess as a lot of people are saying as a response to the attack on what, what has been called an attack on the Crimean Bridge a few days ago. So that's the thing. Um, we can't predict we can't um dictate what what happens in history we can't we can't do that but what we can do you know <laughs> kind of drawing on uh hayden white's um contextualist mode of formal argument we all have choices we all have things we can do we can't stop everything bad we can't make everything good but we can make our lives good we can make good choices we can be good to each other we can be good to we can be good to Russian people. We can be good to Ukrainian people. We can do that. We need to make that choice. And whatever whatever way we need to do that is up to the situation and up to the context and up to the situation we are in. But whatever the case is, make sure that you are doing the right thing. That's all I can say. And um, um, I just want to end. Uh, thank you very much for, for listening. And um, I plan to record a few more episodes in the next little while. So I just want to end with God bless and take care of yourselves and again, take care of each other. Bye for now.